0: Thomas, I'm an intensive care trainee in the Mersey area of the northwest of England. Before we get into the main podcast, I'd just like to highlight some of the work that has been going on on the FICM Learning website over the, of really over the last over the last few months, and that's culminated in the release of the simulation web pages. These have got some great guides and some scenarios and debriefing templates within them, and it really provides you a guide towards. Providing simulation training within um, within in- intensive care, or if you're not from intensive care, then it provide a lot of help to providing it in the in the area that you work. Please go take a look at it, give us some feedback on what you on what you think, and if you think it's a good resource, then please do share it um, with uh, with others so that other people can can get the benefit from it as well. We at FRSM Learning are always looking for other people to become involved in the work that we do. So if you'd like to maybe be involved in um, a podcast episode, or writing a, a blog, or a case of the month, then please do contact us either through the through the web pages, through the FICM um, Twitter, or you can email contact at ficm.ac.uk. Now on to this week's podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Mr. Peter Coyne, who is a, a consultant surgeon, and today we're going to be discussing uh, a lot of the issues around surgical patients in, in intensive care. So I'll just let Peter introduce himself to you.
1: Hi, yeah, I'm Peter Coyne. I'm a consultant colorectal surgeon in Newcastle, in the northeast of England, specialised in, I say, colorectal surgery, but with an interest in advanced cancer and robotic surgery as well. Uh, thanks very much for the invite.
0: The first part that I'd like to just start by discussing, Peter, would just be around the the surgical patient on on intensive care. So some of them will come as a a planned admission. Some of them will come as an emergency admission. Some of them may come preoperatively. And from the point of view of, of an intensivist, particularly an intensivist in training, it can be difficult to work out where the... I said not the overall responsibility, but the the where the level of responsibility between the two teams um lies. I wondered if I could just get your get your view on who has the overall responsibility and does anybody have the overall responsibility for surgical patients on ICU?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question, isn't it? And it's something that's hugely variable. I think where I work now, we're very fortunate, um, and I think the, 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 what you should aspire to is really is dual ownership. So, as a, as a consultant surgeon, if there's any change in my patient, particularly deterioration, I would want to know, and that might be something that's that's non-surgical, chest issue, for example, um, or whatever. But but I would still want to know that because I think a we would sometimes appreciate things from a different point of view. We know, for example, things like fast AF can be due to nasomodic leak or intra sepsis, for example, but but also I think when we're coming on a ward round or communicating with families, et cetera, it's obviously vital we're up to date. Um, in terms of the management of that patient, clearly the expertise of, of dealing with those, the sickest patients lies with our intensive care colleagues and we're very grateful for their support. So I think we would aspire for both. I think the difficulty sometimes comes um, in terms of different units, into unit politics, um, particular things I think out of hours, you might have a more junior trainee, both from a surgical and an intensive care point of view, and they may or may not have the same awareness or feelings, so they may be, you know, there's concerns, I don't want to call Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so at such in time about something that's relatively minor, um, but really, hopefully the, the better units kind of get around that by being honest and open. So. I get called any time night a day if some of my patients is sick and I would much rather that than coming in at seven o'clock in the morning and find something I would have done or would have liked to know about beforehand and, and even if it's a courtesy so you know we we would actively encourage our junior surgical members to, to be able to call us um, and again we often get calls from the ITU team we, we, we're fairly I'm, I'm, I have a lot of patients with to that go to ITU so we're fairly good terms and you know we provide some education stuff for their advanced care practitioners and that kind of thing so I hope the most people feel can pick up the phone, and you know it's, it's, it's a cliché, but there's no such thing as, a, as a, you know, a stupid question, Um, a good example is we have patients that have flaps in their bottom and perineum. And the instructions of what they can and can't do post-operatively are massively variable, so the commonest questions I'll get is I've, I've not written it down clearly enough in the op note that's my fault, and then they'll say well can so and so sit out. And actually now they know the default is that they can't if they've had a flap. So they're now me when the patients, we haven't done a flap, but can, can Mr. or Mrs. Blogg sit out? And actually we would much rather be asked that. Uh, and it's often easier to come to source than go through the chain. So I think it probably doesn't matter as long as somebody is in charge and the communication between whoever that is, is is open. Um, again, our ITU colleagues will, will tell us if there's deterioration in our patient you know if they get a bad pneumonia and they are having to be intubated again or they get sepsis from whatever it is um it's not necessarily surgical related we we would all rather know that and I think whilst that's not universal I would hope that most of my colleagues would would share those thoughts so I think you know a sick patient if you're a surgeon and and you don't want to know about that that's a concern because you know we with good intentions, make people worse before we make them better. So you know we are causing harm with the ultimate aim of making a patient cured from cancer or, you know, appendicitis is taken out, whatever it is. But but I think you know you've got to want to know and look after that patient. It's not just a technical exercise. So ideally both. I think that will vary from unit to unit. There will be some units which are fairly much intensive care driven, and um, I think it's probably important to to maybe we could touch upon that about the training of surgeons in intensive care. So most of us haven't had much it's the honest answer Um when um lmc and, and modernizing surgical careers came in that a lot of the surgical rotations which previously had six months or longer in an ITU set they stopped Um that's again very variable throughout the country and in the pandemic we've seen a lot of surgical registrars you know obviously going to itu and helping out a lot of again you know 10 15 years ago a lot of hgu's for example run by the surgical shos and, and registrars and that still happens in some places but it's very much a minority now and again that's much better for the patient we've got trainees and consultants with a dedicated interest much better at managing those patients than we would be looking after them for the main so I think that's a change for the good but I think it often makes us as a surgeon a bit uncomfortable we go on ITU and there's lots of different you know changes in terms of ventilation or in terms of anatropic support and i think sometimes you think oh i don't really know what i'm doing here um, and that's why actually the best way is to do a joint ward round. So what i'll often do is go on and see it from a surgical perspective but i always go and find the intensivist and say this is what i think you know and usually that's about diet or drains or wounds or whatever and then they'll come with something very different in terms of actually i've had to do this with the anotropic support or we'll changes ventilatory sessions or whatever um and that's why it kind of works if you do that it doesn't have to be you have to do a formal ward round but i think Every day when I've got a patient, I'll try and find the intensivist looking after that patient and try and touch base. And it's amazing how more often than not on either way, either we pick something up we didn't realise or likewise, the nursing and staff or the, the medical staff have realised something as well. So I think collaboration is key, basically, is what I would say.
0: You you said about the 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 chain that's involved in the in the communication. So a lot of the time, the interaction that myself as a as a registrar in ITU might have with surgeons, in, is, often going to be actually in the out of hours where i'm perhaps going to be speaking to the surgical registrar about a patient who they may not may not know sometimes i don't even know the patient is there on, on itu because that's you know it, it wasn't necessary for them to be to be handed over do you think that sort of forms part of the problem in the understanding from from my from my side as to who has ownership of the patient if we're potentially talking to the on-call to the on-call person, it, it can feel like that chain is diluted.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it, absolutely. So you could have a registrar who, uh, for example, has never heard of the procedure. So if you've got a junior surgical registrar and you're doing a complex, for example, I don't know, Whipple's procedure or, or an esophagectomy or an exenteration, and, you know, at ST3, I would have had no idea what that entailed. And then you get a call from an IT registrar about a drain, you think, oh God, I don't know. And then it's three in the morning and it probably doesn't matter. But again, it's about, I think, making sure that as consultants, one of our kind of aims or certainly objectives should be that the trainee knows they can call. And as I have to say, I think most of us, not all, but most of us would want to be called, even if it's something simple. And um, But I think, again, it's tied in, isn't it? The on-call is a busy night shift, if you're on night duty is busy. Something, you know, an ITU foot phone and saying, so-and-so has got a chest infection, a patient you don't know, you're gonna probably not take as much ownership of you on that, and I think it's about, Probably being clear on both sides, look I don't know this patient um, and I think from the ITU side, I guess really being honest about what you need, so I'm totally happy with this patient, has got pneumonia, I'm starting antibiotics, it's courtesy to let you know, could you hand it over in the morning or I think they've got a pneumonia but the belly's a bit sore or the drain's got something, can you come and have a look and I think being honest about what you need on both sides and from the surgical point of view saying look I don't know this patient at all, let me have, give me half an hour, I look at the notes, and have a look at the op no, I'll come and have a look at the patient. But I think the problem is with we all know working, working in the NHS is that the busyness of the encore particularly has increased significantly. And I think staffing levels will vary hugely and, and and obviously sometimes it's difficult to to achieve that optimum. But I think like you'd hand over with anything, um I think if anybody's got any concerns, so it's, it, most things will go to the I2 resident, won't they? That's the first port of call for the I2 nurses. And I think at any level ITU registrar, SHO, etc., if they've got a concern about surgical patient, they should be able to pick up the phone and that should be received readily. Um, but I think it being clear what you want, and sometimes it is a courtesy, look, I don't think this person does have compartment syndrome, I'm absolutely happy with them. But I'm letting you know that, you know, in, in three hours time of a phone year, you, you or, or you might disagree with me, and you might think, actually, I am concerned because I know that operation was difficult and mister missus Mr. And Mrs. So-and-so has mentioned, that this patient was want to be aware of. I, for example, will always if I've got any concern, I'll phone the registrar, I'll make sure that they are aware. So that if you phone up saying there's two hundred mils of blood in the drain, I'll be like that's expected. But sometimes that might be unexpected, and so I think it's very d- difficult as an IT resident to kind of gauge what we're thinking, or sometimes haven't documented necessarily well. So I think you know as you've got more junior grades, registrar, SHO, I think you know it's about being clear what you need or want, and I think if if it's that I want you to come to this patient because I'm worried about them, that should always trigger response, and if it doesn't, because the registrar's too busy operating a whatever it is, and, and the on-calls are notoriously busy on, on both sides, then I think, again, you, you could say, look, there's no problem, you're obviously snowed under, I'll phone Peter and I'll, I'll ask him or her, you know, to ask what they think on the patient. And I think. We're not very good at medicine at doing that when we're busy. I think, generally speaking, you get stressful, and we all been, when people have been grumpy or not receptive. But I think if, if, if you're clear as the referral, what you need or want, and sometimes it's just that I'm just letting you know, then that's fine. Um, but I think on, on our end, when we when we receive that call, we've got to be honest so, look, I don't know anything about this patient. Give me 10 minutes, I'll go and find out. Or do you need me to come now? No, I don't. Okay, give me, I'll pop up in the next half an hour to get worse, let me know. And I think it's just about trying to, to recognize that. Generally, and I think that's across all medicine, isn't it? But uh, I think you're right. The surgeons were probably less good at handing over the stable patient, um, and I think probably therefore, when you've got someone who doesn't know a patient, is a bit more tricky. But yeah, it should be should be achievable. You'd hope.
0: Yeah, and I think sometimes I think from 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 our side in ITU, one of the problems that we have is we're actually not very good at using a common language. So I think we. we assume that everyone who comes to look at a patient in ITU is going to understand everything that's happening in front of them. Um, But then at the same time, we get really picky when people, when whoever comes to see them, then write things like on vasopressors. And you think, actually, our job is about translating what we're seeing in front of us to the person that we're we're speaking to. And as you say, what what you want as a surgeon receiving the phone call is one of... This is why I am concerned about about the patient. You know, maybe we need, we need to think about making sure we're not giving just the amount of noradrenaline that somebody's on, yeah. but rather saying actually, it's doubled, it's increased, and it's increasing rapidly. And I think they're deteriorating. And this is why I'm this is why I'm concerned. This is why I want you to come and see the patient. Good, isn't it absolutely? So I think that's
1: absolutely part of it, and and probably that is uh, sometimes a lack of knowledge in our part that you say, well, I've had to switch them from. You know, single strength to double strength, and whilst everyone appreciates that's that's obviously an increase because it's it's doubled, what does that mean? And and again, I think what you said is, look, I'm having to increase things rapidly. That's or, or and I think that it always improves, isn't it, over time when you have got someone that you know and you've worked with before, when you've got that link, it's it's more when you usually you're picking up a phone someone you don't know and and what they know. And I think being clear, that's so I think it's the same for us as well. So you know, we'll assume that such and such a dressing that we've used or drain or whatever. Is, is common knowledge. And yet, you know, you might, for example, for, so for my practice, doing a pelvic excenteration, one of the things we had when we sort of had the service for years, we use a penile drain. So we use a urinary catheter in the penis, but the patient doesn't have a bladder. So we had some of the nurses were measuring urine output from the bladder drainage and saying, look, this person's not peeing. And we're like, no, they've got an eyelid conduit and there's urine. And that's our problem. We haven't educated the person, you know, someone sees a catheter coming out of a penis, then understandably they'll think that's a urinary catheter. and you know if we use things like pelvic centration it, it's again it's a common language isn't it and so i think it's in incumbent on us to kind of educate the staff when you set up a service as to what things mean and again the same for our registrars you know we see because you've got different tubes and they've got nephrostomies and they've got this that another and actually what does all of that mean and again it's 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 about educating i think it's difficult with some of the very complicated stuff but even the simple stuff so you know most people would understand what an appendectomy was but why might we be worried about so-and-so with the appendix versus another patient. And because there was four-quadrant pus or the base was a bit iffy and we're worried about the base perforating. And and I think there's lots of things that necessarily aren't either communicated well in terms of handover or sometimes even on operation notes. So you know, you can have this person having the same operation, but we're more worried about one person than the other. Um, and, and I think that's really key. Um, and I think it's difficult. And if you're coming on as a, a registrar at night, you won't have any idea about those kind of human factor things and some of that things that's unwritten so i think you have, we have to be honest and have a common language as you say and i think you know if, you know don't assume um on both sides you know i think we see that commonly with some of the dressings that we use and we think only oh, it's had this before but actually you've got a brand new nurse or you've got a brand new registrar who's worked in a different hospital it's a completely different set of dressings or drains or whatever and and even if it's something that's the bog standard where you work i think it's it's just about being really clear on both sides and and that's difficult when you're stressed isn't it and most of the problems come when people are stressed and and don't communicate well And i think you know sometimes it's just saying look this is what i need and if, if you're really busy i get it i'm happy to phone so and so or whatever and, and and i think you know the issues often happen across specialty often because people are stretched in too many directions and and that's where problems come isn't it it's trying to minimize that where that's possible to do
0: and coming back to one thing that said, you said, was surgical training doesn't introduce people to the intensive care environment unless you're there visiting. Um, and there is no pathway that exists for a surgeon to train within intensive care either, unless you take time out of training to spend dedicated time um, in intensive care, which I can imagine isn't attractive to surgical trainees these days with the with the pressures that they're under in terms of what that what's required of their training. I mean, you know, do you think that there's there's maybe a role in the future for um actually a joint a joint pathway with with intensive care where actually you know just like with with some some specialties of medicine, emergency medicine and um anesthesia where actually some divisions within the school maybe could dual train with intensive do you think that would be just too big a burden no, in and,
1: and, and the us that's reasonably common um and there are obviously the subsets within the uk so some of the trauma trainees will do that and they'll take time out to go and do 6 12 months whatever ITU anesthesia and things and and clearly their exposures military settings and all the rest of it will will do that and and obviously through the pandemic we've seen um a lot of surgical trainees around the country having to work in hsu itus and and either developing those skills or, or they may already have had them and i think whilst I'm sure actually, they would have rather been operating and doing things for sure, I think actually they have picked up invaluable skills during that time. Um, in terms of, of, of kind of the US model where they, they absolutely where they, they do that, I think there's real advantages, I think particularly for emergency general surgeons, who as the name suggested and trying to make that attractive, you know, could it be for role of dual accrediting and doing that? Yeah, I think so. Um, it w- I think it would be really good to do some ITU, you know, four, six months as a, and, and some people do that with the foundation program, obviously, but but if you don't, or you're not fortunate, or you don't get a job in that, then then some time will be useful. It's, it's how you kind of sync that alongside. And of course, depending on what surgical specialty you go into, you may or may not have that much exposure to ITU. So, you know, if you're doing, um, you know, benign upper GI or um or things you you may not have that many patients that routinely go to hdu and therefore the time that you do have to go because you've got sick laparotomy is that much more stressful if you're on there pretty much every day seeing them and speaking to them and and you know doing that kind of thing i think it's much less frightening place um and i think i think it's about kind of trying to break down those barriers so yes i think it'll be useful to include it I, i guess it's how you do that amongst everything else and it's tricky and and probably what you want to, would want to do is to sub select out the, the, the people that are going to be doing a, or spending a lot more time on ITU. And I guess the obvious subgroup would be the trauma surgeons or um, emergency general surgeons. Um, and I think that will be useful. Um, and I mean, stuff, even simple stuff. So, you know, putting a central line in, an arterial line, there will be a significant percentage of surgical trainees that will have never done that. So you may have done a vascular job where that was part of it. You know, I did some lines access stuff when I was an SHO and things. but you may never have done it and actually then you know you're doing a cut down in a trauma um and or you know there's a trauma situation needs to try and get access and, and you think i can't really do much here i know it's a reasonably simple skill once you have done enough of them but you could go through your whole training and have a never put a central line in um and that kind of thing so um, i do think it's something probably in surgical training we need to think about how that experience is and of course of course is we have to do a definitive trauma course we have to do crisp um which I always think is, is 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 basic intensive care for surgeons, and 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 actually, I that was a really useful course because things like epidural management, you know, and the the calls used to get as an SHO about epidurals, thinking I've never seen one put in, I don't really know, and and that kind of thing were, were really useful, um, and and I think the time that probably most surgeons stress about it the most is before the exam, so you do your FRCS, there's a um a physiology and and in sort of um. Uh, kind of intensive care kind of section of the viva, and you're thinking, I've never worked in ITU, I suddenly have to understand all the difference between the various ventilation modes and stuff and, and you're kind of begging your intensivist to kind of teach you about it and things and, and whilst that's useful, it kind of surely should be part and part of, sort of what we do day in but um, and I think for us in reverse, you know, most we, we ordered this in the northeast quite a, about probably about a decade ago, and, and it was only one or two of the kind of 100 or 200 surg- um, GP rotations we had any surgery in them. For the A&E trainees, there's very few of them that come and spend any time in surgery. They'll do a lot of intensive care, pediatrics, whatever. But I think, you know, surgery is often perceived as like this kind of isolated bit. And we need to be more open and say, well actually, your intensive care, come spend two months, come and do some basic suturing and see what happens when the lap goes from the kind of other side of it. And I, It probably would be quite useful on both fronts to do that. They get a better understanding of why this appendix was horrible and took two hours rather than the one that took twenty minutes or whatever? Like <laughs> we're not just farting about and taking time or whatever.
0: Um, and one of the things that strikes me is so core medical training changed that every core medical trainee has to spend three months with, within um, intensive care, whether they want to or not. They have to now. Do you think maybe that's the way that you could you could actually introduce sort of all core surgical trainees? go through three months of intensive care, they just gain that insight um, into it so that on when they're on the other side of it and then further on in the training, they can look back and think, do you know what, this is, this is familiar to me. And actually now I've got that just enough understanding to know when you're saying you're concerned, for these reasons, I understand why you're concerned.
1: Yeah, I think I think that would be a good idea. And with the shape of training, yes, those are the things they're sort of looking at and and... And there's pros and cons and it's been debated and, and things are kind of ad nauseum. And, and I guess one of the things is is that broad early training that gives you a bit of a flavor. And I think for us as surgery, surgery was always super competitive. It was 10 to 1 to get a registrar number. And and it and, and it's it's still very competitive, but interest has dwindled a bit, probably because. For lots of reasons, and, and it's an opportunity for us to show that you know we're nice people, and it's a really challenging and fulfilling specialty. But again, it would also I think broaden your horizons as well. So you know, for some of the spe- you know if you've not done any IT, you're, you're probably not going to pick a job in IT, and the same kind of thing in reverse. So I think I think something like that in your basic kind of foundation or core training would be would be really useful.
0: I think one of the things which oft which I think is is worth demystifying a little bit is about is regarding the level of care particularly the post-op need of the the patient and the first thing I'd like to ask is from your your perspective what sort of factors go into the decision making about um, what level of care and the area that you're going to be thinking about the patient needs to go after the operation.
1: Um, yeah, I think so. F- for us, I guess it's, there's two elements. Obviously, what you want the, the, to do is a patient to go to the safest places, going to be possible for them. Um, at the same time, at the back of our mind, particularly for some of the more straightforward standard cases, we're thinking about enhanced recovery, so we're thinking about the the, the kind of lack of use of drips and drains and getting people going straight away. Um, so I think it's a trade off. There's lots of places now we are getting one, but our sister hospital already has one, it's like a PACU, so of level one, and I think that's a good trade-off. We, in the last, what, 12 months, we've just been a new initiative from our pre-assessment team, so we now have an anaesthetic-led ward round, so all of our elective enhanced recovery patients are seen by an anaesthetist uh, four days a week, I think, so not quite, we're, we're working on getting a full day, but and that's been revolutionary, so just simple stuff like taking time look at their analgesics to make sure it's done properly making sure that the fluids are kind of managed properly making sure that and again they are very good it's consultant led so they will pick up the phone to us and say you've, you, this guy's still got his draining does he really need it i think oh no he doesn't actually he can come out because someone's a surgical warden as i'm sure you've seen is whistle stop and it's trying to rush around you know sometimes 15 20 more patients before theater so Some of those simple things are often forgotten, and that can increase a patient's risk of complications or length of stay. So I think it depends where you work. For us, I think, you know, the use of HDU is invaluable. But the reality is, even in a big case, let's say pelvic centuration, very few of our complications happen in the first 24 hours. So absolutely someone can bleed. And that's why they kind of go to HDU for that kind of monitoring. Or they've had a long operation, they're acidotic prolonged procedure, all of that stuff. But but a lot of our complications happen three, four, five, six days down the line. So some sort of kind of middle ground is really useful. And I think that's where your kind of level ones come into play. Our upper GI colleagues here have a kind of um special care unit for their sophageomy. So they've got HDU and then they stepped out of special care with an enhanced nursing ratio and that kind of thing. And I think that's kind of really good. It doesn't necessarily have to be run by intensivists but with kind of some sort of buying that deterioration patient gets taken back quickly what i guess intensive care what they don't want a lot of patients on intensive care when beds are super tight you don't need to be there clearly absolutely um and of course the pressures on the beds are again variable we're very fortunate here but in lots of places that's really tight so i've never had a cancelled patient because of lack of H2 bed in six years as a consultant that's probably unheard of and i know that it's not replicated around the country so i think it's picking out those patients who definitely need to go making sure they get the bed and the ones who Okay, they're high risk, or they've had a longer procedure than thought. Maybe it's a lap, lap's got converted, and those patients maybe don't have any specific HDU needs. But that's where level one, which can be run in recovery or in a special dedicated bay on the ward, I think the advantage for us as surgeons is that upskills our nurses. So if our nurses are having to provide a bit of enhanced care, let's say it's managing an arterial line. Actually, that's progression, and that's an extra skill, and that's um, you know extra training. And as a team, you want to bring the whole team. You, know, you want your nurses, you want your physios, you want your dietitians, you want the whole team to come on. That's how you get better as a unit. So, how a level one is run, who runs it, that kind of thing, I think is obviously going to be up for debate. But I think a surgeon is identifying an anesthetist is identifying the right patients. And I think that starts with pre assessment and a robust pre assessment process. And again, we're very fortunate. We've got five or six anesthetists dedicated. They are, I mean, honestly, everything is run. So, it used to be that we had, you know, the, we were organizing iron infusions for example someone's a bit anemic pre-op and we were having to get them into our day case ward give them an iron infusion that is now all done for us and it is phenomenal it's seamless and it's those little things that are often missed and suddenly a patient turns up with a haemoglobin of 90 for a major procedure that actually has waited four weeks and could have had an iron infusion four weeks ago yeah
0: and it it sounds like that level one area really needs to be a a properly joined up area as well um so I think the the model that I've often seen in in the area where I work is that the 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 paku paku depending on where you work the, the a or the o is interchangeable. Um, often it's run by it's the it's the on-call anaesthetist for theatres who's who's looking after those patients, um, and often and it's usually they've got an easier offer, uh, into into it you if it isn't isn't quite, isn't quite going right. It's easy to have these conversations about levels of care about from the from the from the clinical aspect. But there's the nursing aspect as well. Within enhanced recovery protocols, a lot of those are really by by the nurse by the nursing staff as well. That early mobilization, early feeding, and all of that relies heavily on the nursing staff. And actually that's where the the higher level of care, whether it's ITU, HTU or, or a or OCU type area, actually where the nurses within there can really drive that enhanced recovery forwards, isn't it?
1: I think probably, probably one of the worst phone calls that you guys get from us is this patient's just not quite right and they need a bit more nursing care because you know the reality is if you know 30 patient ward whatever you might have two nurses on overnight and if you've got someone sick that that potentially is very difficult to manage Um, you know with maybe a junior surgical cover and and less nursing support so that's probably the most annoying phone call from an IT point. well hang on a second actually they don't definitely need any organ support but that's where like an intermediate thing is so useful. So you've got a dedicated area where that patient can go. And actually, you know, we know that if we, if we are aggressive in terms of how we manage that patient, well, they probably never need to come to HDU. It might be they just need a bit more fluid quickly, a bit level, high levels of oxygen or nebulizers or potassium, whatever it might be. But actually by doing that early, we save the patient needing to go to HDU that's in for six, seven days because we've nipped it in the bud. And I think, again, you know what we want is what you want isn't its is the whole team to be energized to kind of develop together and, and that's that's what it is and i think as, as doctors we need to be mindful of that so we've got to make sure that that our we want we want the best nurses looking after my i want the best nurses looking after my patients all the time and that involves being involved in training that involves us um, upskilling them and kind of allowing them to develop and support them and i think that's really important and it's probably Easy to forget. We're all busy. We're charging around, and actually, you kind of look at it from one side. But actually, what what support do they need to provide that kind of care? And and I think for us in a surgical ward, you know, I think we touched upon organ to one things like dressings and things, and sort of vac dressings and complex wounds are, are, are pretty common. And when a patient's on intensive care for a long time, it's difficult. The intensive care nurses have had so much training looking after that really sick patient, and all of those organ support that they need in dialysis, CVVH intubation ventilation whatever it is and actually sometimes we've not because they don't see that chronic wound often necessarily that we've got to then take ownership and and then it gets quite difficult well it needs a vac changing but it's a complicated vac and then who's going to do it and that kind of thing and it often gets quite kind of political or, or, or messy it doesn't necessarily need to be and i think again from that kind of crossover having the nurses work in both ways and looking after the patients really useful to do that as well <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, it almost strikes me that no matter where the surgical patient is, if they if they've had a need for a higher level care, you almost need, I suppose, a, a system of a, of an in reach um, intensive care service. It doesn't have to be a medical intensive care service. It could be, you know, a sort of a senior a senior nurse just just to, just touching base. And similarly, I think for the for the longer stay surgical patients, you probably do need that that in-touch surgical re- in, sort of in-reach um, service as well again it wouldn't have to be the consultant coming in coming in every morning but somebody who knows who knows the care of these of these patients um, you know
1: I think the same. it's the same isn't it with so I mean the, 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 you know the, the obvious example is someone who's got a laparostomy so they've got a complex vac they may, or may not have stomas as well um, or the, the other group of patients is the reasonably well patient that maybe has a needs a bit of CPAP or something like that delivered um, for a day or two and they've got a stoma and the, our stoma is phenomenal so they'll track the patients down wherever but but often that patient doesn't get quite get the same kind of enhanced recovery level of care because of where they are on the tubes and the drips and it's all a bit more difficult to arrange so I think you know what, almost what you need is a sort of surgical ward to go round and with with a nurse or whatever or a stoma nurse or an enhanced recovery nurse or whatever to kind of try and help with those issues um, but I think a lot of it comes down to the you know um, you know we rely on anaesthetics we rely on ITU we couldn't do our operations without it and therefore we have a duty to work together to hopefully give you the best outcome and that involves on all sides you know things like m and so sitting down together to discuss m and so one of our anaesthetic or ITU consultants will come to our mortality discussions for surgical patient and they come with a completely different mindset. We're focused on, you know, operation, did it go well, was it done right? Was it the right operation, et cetera, with the complications that obviously ensued, managed properly. And an intensive care person will pick up things that we've not even noticed. And okay, well, let's go back and look at the early warning score chart. And at this point, could we have done anything different? And I think we just come at different views. And actually, what you want is a bit of both, um, and that's how we learn, isn't it? So we, we've noticed, you know, we've had a number of cases where we've really learned, there's been really positive learning outcomes because we've had both there. And, and, and the same I had a, a colleague called me up um, a week or two ago about a patient and a complication that ensued just so they could understand what operation had done because he, he was having to write a, a sort of statement what have you and he wanted to know at what point was this out with what would have normally been done and that kind of thing and, and i think it's about those channels so that you can discuss those so from all aspects um and that's hopefully how you make things better Probably what's not done enough is cross specialty education, which we touched upon in poor trainee, but I mean, even at departmental level. You know, if, if you're running a complex liver surgery, cardiac surgery, whatever, actually sitting down as a group once every so often, all the time, and, and actually say, right, let's talk about these new operations we're doing, or actually, so a standard patient who's had X, Y, and Z, and this is what they're going to come back with, this is what we would consider normal. And then, you know, from an intensive care, well, you know, if I'm doing accentuation or say correct to me or whatever, they're normally coming back on a bit of inotropes or whatever. So what point does that become not normal or, you know, and, and of course, it's not black and white and it's 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 variable. And it's it's about the clinical context. But, um, uh, you know, a good example, I had a, a lady who had a complex uh, anal cancer and she was young and fit and healthy. And she went back and I'd be a bit concerned because it's quite, quite a big thing. and. And the surgical registrar had asked to see and she checked and the drains were okay. there's a bit of blood, but they hadn't really changed. And it was actually the ITU guys that said, she's just not right. And you know, if she's on a bit of more iron and took, as you would expect, the lactates, you know, it's four, it's now six, Just it, it just, her general trend, it wasn't horrific, but it was clearly not in the direction that a young lady should have been. And so they phoned me up and I, I said, fine, we'll come and see her. And it's like, she needs to go back to the theatre, she's obviously bled. But actually the drains were okay because they'd actually have clot on them. And she have, you know, it's fine. So she had a little tiny thing took her back, washed it out. Um, it was just a bit of oozing from where like, this big raw space had been, so it was fine. But she's very easily someone who at eight o'clock that next morning would have been on double strength, quad strength, blah, 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 intubated, all the rest of it, and in, and in a much worse position. But actually, and it was the ITU guys that picked that up because actually, just from a surgical perspective, she had a soft tummy, her stoma was pink. The drains were okay, they hadn't really changed because actually they blocked, they had a clot in them. And it was that subtle change in the fact that she just was needing a bit more inotropes that it was going the wrong way, and the lactate had gone up expected, but it hadn't come down, and so it was it was one of those almost phone calls. She's probably okay. I'm not really sure. What do you think? Type things. And it, and again, it's like, well, it's I'm going to come have a look at her. And actually, you know, you're so glad she did. And actually, she went home day seven. Whereas actually, if we'd taken it to the theatre the next day been a complex laparotomy, you should have been sicker, it should have been two or three days in ICU, She should have been in for probably two, three, four weeks, whatever, and the rest of it. So I think that common language is important, and I think, you know, what's the normal trajectory or pathway of whatever operation or group of operations you're doing is probably important, and we're probably not expected, or we haven't, we haven't explained that probably well enough. So again, with that group of patients, at what point are we worried about the drain? What We know how much fluid or blood's in the drain, and and of course it varies, but I think it's, it's just kind of maybe setting clear parameters. We, we changed our opero- oper- operation, sorry, here a few weeks, ago, a few years ago. And so now, you know, all the basic stuff's on there. So the question's, do they need antibiotics? Do they, what VT do they need? It's, it's, that's the classic one, isn't it? Because actually sometimes we'll say, we don't want this person to have tins of or an oxypan, whatever it is you're using that night. Um, and, and things. So it was a kind of ticky box and what drains were in and what they were draining. like You know, what you think was fairly basic and, and what might have been obvious to one group of people but probably not to everybody so i think it's again about how we communicate and educate and, and and try and do that and that will stop some of the phone calls that might be irksome to on both sides and it will also mean that people are empowered to phone when actually it's just something not quite right you know that it's 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 the kind of worst phone calls you don't know what to do with it but actually it's often there is something wrong
0: and i think sometimes there's that there's that assumption that the intensive is going to know what's going to them, what's going to be going on because because the intensive care looks after these these um these patients, but maybe it's where actually we we as the intensive care team need to be asking these questions. What the surgical team say actually? Can you come and talk us through what this operation is, what's involved in it, and what the post-op you know at least the first forty-eight hours we're likely to see? I think with those complex patients as well,
1: and, and, and a good way we're increasingly pushing the boat about what is so in, in your liver unit they'll be doing resections that they wouldn't have attempted 10 years ago and the same for us in colorectal we're doing exenterations and you know so we're doing you know complex sidewall we're taking out static nerves so the patient has to walk with splint and actually how are you meant to how are you, how are you expected to know what that means is probably a great deal of my colleagues have no idea of some of the operations that we do we write these really long names of stuff you know no idea i tend to write in brackets right like kind of what we've taken out or whatever but even then you don't know what the anatomy is what the the, the gut function is you know nutrition's another a good one isn't it? A nutrition i think as surgeons we're, we're probably much better than we were before but again for the intensive care when can i feed someone when do they need ng nj tpn whatever it might be and, and and when do i want when do i start that why don't you want to start it now When you you know you did with such and i think it's got to be about communication and, and you know it's difficult to cover all eventualities but I think if you've got a complex service I think you kind of you know for the for from all funds from the from the nursing from the, the anaesthetics ITU from the so you have got to kind of do it together we introduced robotics um, at, at I uh, we have it both sites, but the site they I'm at now um, and one of the key things we've got was the anaesthetist to be part of our governance group so, we had parameters, for example, of how long of head down the patient were uh, going to be because you tend to be a little bit steeper head down. So, risk of cerebral edema and all that kind of thing. So, I think, you know, if you're setting up new services, but I think even if you've got a very good service, you're going to have changeover staff every few years. It's just the nature of, of how things are. And, and, like you say, if you've never seen liver resection and you, you're getting sicker and sicker, is that normal? You know, and you might phone a surgical registrar who doesn't work in the HPB firm and, and isn't sure either. And, and then you're kind of like well are they, you know it's, it, that's what leads to the indecision and oh I don't know let's see how things go and things and I think you know as consultants we've got to, we've got to really take that ownership of of doing that and, and and again I guess being being able to work in an environment where you can ask and you don't know you know because nobody knows everything no matter you know on either side uh, it's just not how it works and and of course it, we're dealing with complicated patients with increasing comorbidity and all the rest of it and, and things and, and it is difficult, it's difficult medicine it's you know by nature of the beast it's the sickest patients in the hospital so um, you know I think it's very very difficult so I think you've got to be open to that communication and, and that should be doable one would hope.